I didn't mention last week that as I began to take you through this mission statement, I would like you to bring it back each week. So from here on out this fall until I signal otherwise, would you count this as second in authority after the Bible? <laughs> as, as what you stick in your Bible when you come? It is not the Bible. It is not even close to the Bible. But it's important that you have it with you because I'm going to point to things in it. Now, this morning in your worship folder, you have the front page printed. So you don't need to panic if you don't have it with you. Although I am going to point to a couple of other things in it. That we exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things for the joy of all peoples. That's page one. It's printed right there at the top of your worship folder on the front page. There is a study guide for next week's focus on the inside of the page. And if you want to lead your family in a time of preparation to try to really dig in to this document, then there are some sheets, there were anyway, out there on the welcome table, which are the study guide for this coming week. And I wrote them to try to guide you through where I'm heading in interpreting page two next next Sunday. Now, what I'd like to do to uh, put this first page in a context this morning before I unpack the six phrases in it is to uh, read for you a quote from the Apostle Paul in Acts 13, 36. You don't need to look it up. He's preaching at the synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia on his first missionary journey. And he says this about King David in the Old Testament. He said, David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation fell asleep and was laid among his fathers. Now, the reason I read that is because I want to stress that the call of God on my life and your life and this church corporately is not primarily to serve people who will be alive in 100 years or 50 years for that matter. Our calling is to do like David did. He served the purpose of God in his own generation and fell asleep. Now, it may be that in God's providence, some people's and some churches' lives have ripple effects long after they're dead. But that is not your main burden in living. God will call you to account not so much for that as for how you faced off with and dealt with the people in your generation. And that's what he will call our church to account for mainly. How did you speak? How did you act on behalf of those living in your lifetime, in your generation? Now, the reason I mention this in relationship to this mission statement on page one is to stress a humility that we must have about us and an encouragement that he offers to us. Now, the humility flows from the historic or how should we say it? The, the fact that it is so, this statement is so historically conditioned or shaped. There are a thousand things in the lives of those of us who worked on this that went into the choice of these words and this focus. Things like personality, family, friendships, language, education, location, media, travel, tragedy, age, employment, economics, reading, health, 
denomination affiliation, prayer, theology, devotion, worship, etc., etc. Our mission statement did not drop out of heaven culture free. This was, we believe, the product of the wrestling of about 30 hearts and 30 minds who all of whom all of whom were were conditioned by 10,000 factors to think and feel the way they thought and felt in that time in that place in the past 8 or 9 months now that should humble us it should humble us because we are not making any claim whatsoever that this statement should exist forever nor are we claiming that every church should embrace this way of saying it. Nor are we saying that in another culture or in another time, this would be the best way of saying it. What we're saying is, this seems to be our reading of the way Almighty God, under a thousand providences, at this time, in this place, with what this church has becoming for these several decades, this is God's call upon our lives. This is our contribution. If we do it, if we live this thing for several years, this is our contribution to the body of Christ. And it in no way implies that another church down the street there, say Bethesda Baptist or the Compassion Center, Augustana Lutheran or First Covenant or Central Free, that we lay this on the table and say, do that with us. Say it that way. They've got their own conditioned reading on God's purpose now for them in this city. And we have something to say. We have a contribution to make. If everybody did it like we did it, the body of Christ would be impoverished. That's what I mean by humility. We are humbled by this historic conditionedness and the call of God to say, serve your generation. Serve it with your call on this generation. Serve it with your peculiar people that gather here in Sunday. Serve it with your peculiar staff and your peculiar elders and your peculiar deacons and your peculiar location. And don't presume that everybody with another set of staff and another set of elders and another location and another gathering and another building in another time should say it and do it just the way you do it. So I want you to feel that as you hold this in your hand, it is a humble document. It's just our reading of God's call on our life as we speak to this city. Without the presumption that if they don't say it the way we say it, and if that church doesn't put this on their front page, they're somehow defective in their reading of God's call in their life. There are defective theologies. That's not what we're talking about. There just are a hundred, a thousand ways to say a great mission statement for a call on a church's life. But I also believe it's tremendously encouraging to keep in mind that God calls us to serve our generation from our peculiarity with our historic conditionedness, the shaping of this time. It's encouraging because we're freed. I just feel so freed not to have to bear the burden of infallibility. This is not the Bible, not even close to the Bible. The Bible and God himself are the great standards in life and infallibility. This is a reading in time and history by fallible people of how we believe God is calling us to apply his infallible truth to these cities. And therefore, it's important and it's encouraging. That's all we've got is our reading of God's infallible word for us and our time. 
And therefore, we put it forward with tremendous encouragement. We're relieved. We don't have to bear the burden of permanence. There's no way. You know where this book is going to be in five years? In the archives. Then nobody will remember this little book in five years. We'll be on to a, a new way of saying it, and, and new language, and new thrust, and new emphases. But we've got something awesome to live for here. To throw ourselves into this. And I don't doubt that the Lord will refine it and purify it and apply it in ways that will be fresh come five, ten years from now. This will go into the archives. I don't feel any burden as a pastor whatsoever to keep this on the front burner forever in this church. There will be another generation that comes and they will say it another way for another time and another group of, of people. And we're relieved from having to play like we're God or that this is the word of God. The, what does it say? The, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of God endures forever. Not human mission statements. The word of God endures forever. So be encouraged and be humbled by the document that you hold in your hand. We believe it is a faithful rendering of a group of people in a group at a specific time under many providential influences, a faithful rendering of God's special call on this church for this time in this place for the foreseeable future. Now, this 10 minute or whatever introduction to this sermon is a reflection of values in this. I'm not. I'm not doing what I'm doing right now, saying the last eight or ten minutes because I just feel like it. I am reflecting where the master planning committee has been and what God's been teaching us. If you have one, I invite you to open it and turn to page four. And on page four, I mean, uh, yeah, um, it says in the left hand column, big print. In the light of our mission, that's page one, and our spiritual dynamic, that's page two, that drives it, the following values grip us as we, now listen to these words, as we reflect and pray over the particular circumstances and constituency as a church in this metropolitan area with these surrounding neighborhoods at this time in redemptive history. You see, I didn't, this, this I'm... I'm trying to reflect what's in this book by way of spirit and tone and, and uh, ethos so that you catch on to the mood of this document. That's what I just tried to say right there. And value number 20 on page six. We'll look at that one. Bottom of the first column there on page six. We value... Serving and being enriched by the wider movements of God's spirit across church and cultural lines. Now, that sentence is what I'm trying to say, that I want us to be a servant church to the wider movement. Bangkok, Conakry, Addis Ababa, down the street, across Minneapolis. I want us to be a servant church who takes our mission statement and doesn't boast over it or use it as any kind of club, but makes it the power of our call to serve other churches. But, you know, right at that moment when we wrote that, just to show you how careful this 
planning team was. And we prayed. They said, you know, the heart is very deceitful and very corrupt and and very liable to pride, even in servanthood. We were so aware as we worked through this that any of this might be taken, even as we say, we are here to serve, you know, you. And have that, that very supposedly lowly thing be a thing of pride. And so we, we added the words, and words can never protect you from pride entirely, but they can help. We added those words, serving and being enriched by. That was draft number two. This is why I said that when we gave this over to the printer and he tried to paraphrase some of this, we said, not a word, not a word can you change. Serving and being enriched by, in a sense, you could say, well, that's kind of selfish. You want to go around being enriched by everybody. But you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't, right? You try to serve and you're proud. You try to be enriched by and you're proud. The point is. We need the church. We need the wider body. I just listened to Tom Steller's summer sermon yesterday and today. And Tom's whole point was that not just in this body, but the big body, churches need each other. And we have something to contribute. That's page one here. All of that by way of introduction to lead you into my unpacking this. This will take now about 15 minutes to do. And I want to take it a phrase at a time. And... Open to you each phrase. Number one, the supremacy of God. Right at the middle there, the supremacy of God. And I'll try to give you a key text for each one of these, or most of them anyway. Here's the key text for this one. Second Samuel 7.22, David prays a great prayer and he says, Thou art great, O Lord God, for there is none like thee, and there is no God besides our God. That means God is supreme. He has supremacy. There is no God like our God. He is first and last. He is the only God. There is none like him. Now, over against that, the most supreme, glorious, important being in the universe. Tell me how important he is at your place of work. Tell me how important he is at the Star Tribune. Tell me how important he is on the TV channel that you watch. Tell me how important he is over at the university. Tell me how important he is in leisure industry and commerce and high schools and junior high schools in the the Twin Cities. And the answer comes back. God who? What's God got to do with anything? Nothing. And if you, if you can test by whether this mission statement is getting into your bloodstream by whether you're shocked at that. You see, our culture is so God ignoring that we, being children of our culture, take that for granted as the normal way. That there's a sports section and not a God section in the Tribune shocks nobody unless this is in their blood. Sports section. Can you believe it? What are they going to say to God on the judgment day when he says, where was my section? There's a section. So you talk about Kirby Puckett's broken jaw. What about my broken son? Said, well, we should have took that for granted. We did that on the weekend. He said, 
That doesn't make any sense. That makes no sense. That's crazy. That's blind. God is the upholder of all things, the creator of all things, and all people will give an account to God. Our mission at Bethlehem is the supremacy of God, to put it forward, to proclaim it, to announce it, to live it, to model it, in a culture for whom it is gone. Number two, in all things, supremacy of God in all things. Key text, 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Eating and drinking are mentioned because they are humdrum, ordinary, daily, mundane things. If you took a survey in the Twin Cities and says, how important should God be or how important is God in church on Sunday? Everybody would say, well, he's the most important thing in church on Sunday. Amen. And then you say, and how important is God to Diet Coke and bagels on Monday morning? What do you mean? Well, what do you mean what I mean? I just asked the question. How important is God to your eating a bagel on the way to work? Well, I, I didn't even know how to answer your question. He's gone. He's, he's, he's gone. And so when I say with 1 Corinthians 10, 31, the supremacy of God in all things, I mean bagels, Diet Coke, broken clutches, Internet, sex in the bedroom, Reports at work, homework with your kids, aching knees, vacations, car buying, investments. I mean everything. If this gets into your bloodstream, it won't be an odd question to say, how important is God when you buy a bagel? Do you buy it for his glory? Is he the main person at the moment? Do you acknowledge he's holding the bagel in being? Do you acknowledge that the pleasures of it are God-given pleasures graciously bestowed upon you, that out of you might flow thanksgiving for the bagel? And if you don't do that, you haven't got it yet. In all things. Our mission is to lift up the supremacy of God and to press it into all things in the Twin Cities and all things in our lives so that we become a God-soaked people. Number three, a passion for the supremacy of God in all things. Take the word passion. That's a dangerous word, isn't it? Especially if you put the word purple in front of it, which we don't. A passion for God. If you don't like the word, try zeal, fervency, Earnestness, jealousy. But somehow get a handle on the biblical teaching that Jesus gave us when he said the first commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with 50 percent of your heart. He said you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might and all your mind, all of it. Somehow or other, we have to get beyond what will be spit out of the Lord's mouth. I mean, the most scary verse in the Bible is Revelation 3.16. I would that you were cold 
are hot, but because you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. That's a scary verse for people who think emotions don't matter. For people who think not having passion is a matter of indifference. For people who think that affections are the icing on the cake of Christianity. They're not icing. The whole cake comes out of his mouth if it's not hot or cold. It's a scary verse. However you define it. You know, if you sit there and you say, oh, that's just not my personality. You better find a definition of cold and hot so that you can define yourself as not lukewarm lest you be spit out of his mouth. I mean, this is serious. Passion is not a play word. All your heart is the word of the the Lord, not John Piper. All your heart. Love him. Love him. And when you come to the end of the day, you know, some of you are so good that you come to the end of the day and you want to confess your sins and you can't think of one. Let me help you think of one. Just measure your affections and your preoccupation with God that day in terms of all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and see if you don't have something to confess at the end of the day. And let that confession be hearty as you call upon the Lord for forgiveness, and he will give it. Number four. For the joy, for the joy, a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy. The assumption here is that if you see the supremacy of God, it will produce joy in your life. Now, that is not an opinion. That is the testimony of 10,000 saints who have pursued a passion in God. And it is the witness of Holy Scripture in Psalm 1611. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. There's a logic here. Let me read you the logic in Psalm 95, 2 and 3. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For, notice the logical connection. The Lord is a great God and a great king. Shout joyfully to the Lord. For the Lord is a great God. He is supreme. Now put it backwards. The supremacy of God is the ground of the joy in this mission statement. This is what we feel is our burden and mission at Bethlehem. A joy rooted in seeing and savoring the supremacy of God in all things. That's the passion of our church. To pursue that joy in God and savor him in that way is our life. uh, Not finally, two more. Number five, of all peoples at the bottom, for the joy of all peoples. Now, why did we put S on the end of that word? Why peoples instead of people? It's not because individuals aren't important. Only individuals get saved. Individuals can relate to God through Jesus Christ. The point of putting an S on it is to highlight that we are a mission-driven church under God. Disciple all the nations, nations, rejoice and be glad, all you peoples, rejoice all nations. 
This gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. In the 1040 window, there are nations, that is, people groups, peoples, ethnic groupings that have no church. I mean, they don't even have a chance to write a mission statement. They can't even produce ministries for their locale because they don't have it. And we will not be content until joy spreads to all those peoples, which leaves us now finally to the word spread at the beginning. If this is so, if God is supreme and glorious above all realities and more satisfying than anything else in the world, if that relates to all things, if it brings joy and releases passion in your life, if it belongs to all the peoples, if we sit on it, we're not Christians. If we hoard it to ourselves with no impulse within to spread, 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 we just can't say that we know the God of the Bible because he made the sun come up on Minneapolis this morning. Did you think about that? This wicked city, this rebellious city, this city where probably 60% of the people didn't darken the door of the house of God because they don't believe in God. And dozens and dozens and hundreds and thousands went to the house of God nominally and empty hearted and will go home empty hearted and did it through routine. And God saved them another day to see. He gave them the sun. He gave them appetite. Breakfast was on their tables. Clothes was on their back. They had transportation. Their children, by and large, were still alive rather than crushed under the wrath of the Lamb. He gave them another day today. And probably he will go on holding the world in being till the end of today. Maybe not, but probably he will. Grace upon grace upon grace. The heavens, there it comes, the sun, declaring the glory of God and getting blasphemy in his face day after day as people ignore him and go about their play and their television, their computers and their work, giving him no credit no thanks, no attention, no humble service, no worship. And he does it again tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. And what I'm saying is we got to get to be like him. Spread, spread, come back again and again to the rebellious. Come back again and again and love our enemies and woo them and love them and spread to them. Leaves this last question. In this document, I pointed out last week that probably the most decisive sentence of the heart was the one in the column on page three right there where it says the cry of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of our people is for a fresh, decisive emphasis on relationships of love. You should ask, where's love on page one? Then, If the heart cry of our people is for relationships of love, where's love on page one? In the mission statement. You know what the answer to that is? This is our definition of love. This is love. Love is to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things for joy of all peoples. Love is to spread joy in God. Love is to spread joy in God. Mark this. Suppose you knew somebody who has a need and you give them all the food they need and you give them all the clothes they need and you give them all the housing they need and you find a job for them and you help them get reconciled as a family and you give them all the friendship they need 
and you don't give them joy in the supremacy of God, they will not thank you at the judgment day. They'll curse you. Just think about that. If you give them everything they think they need upon this earth and do not give them joy that satisfies forever in the presence of the living God, they will curse you at the judgment day as they go into everlasting destruction. Why did you trick me? Why did you make me so happy and so satisfied by finding me a job and finding me food and finding reconciliation with my husband and didn't show me that there was a way out of hell and a way out of sin and a way out of guilt and a way into relationship with the all glorious living God who is now turning his back on me because I have rebelled against him all my life. Nobody is going to thank you for all the good deeds of your lives unless they were done with a passion to reveal the supremacy of God in the joy of those people wooing them into fellowship with us and with the living God so that they would go us with us up to, to heaven, then they will thank you. And so if you ask me, where's love? Where's love in the mission statement? I would die to defend this as the definition of love. Love is a passion or love is spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples. Love is spreading joy. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, my heart's desire, my cry to you with hundreds here is that this mission statement would get under our skin and into our bloodstream and become the fabric of our spiritual life so that we have a passion for your supremacy in all things and enjoy you and out from us would spread for all the people and all the peoples this joy in you. Make us a loving people. Don't let us be content to do nice things that leave people in the grip of destruction. Grant, I pray that we would love them enough to take them all the way home and make us fruitful to that end. And it may be that as we leave now, some of you would like to pray about the supremacy of God in your life or particular things where you don't feel like He is supreme. I'll be here for a bit and prayer teams will be here. We'd love to just... Ask the Holy Spirit to make him supreme in your life. Would you stand just for a brief benediction? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace and joy in his supremacy and fill you with a zeal, passion to spread that all over the cities. And all the people said, Amen.